This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. We need to start selling science. You know, we market lots of products, but we don't sell science. The science should precede the product. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. We all know that the balanced microbiome is so important to our overall health. How much do we know about the products that we use and how it might impact the health of our vaginal microbiome. So today I bring to you an episode with Pam Miles, who is the founder of Apothecare, as well as Cindy Orser, who is one of the scientific researchers. And we talk today about some of these products. And what Apothecare is here to do is cut through the hype and bring science to the consumer. So let's hear what Pam and Cindy have to say. I learned about you guys through a friend of mine, Karen, who I have known for a really long time through my consulting days. And Pamela, I must say that since we spoke, I have now made it a policy that if I do a prep discussion with anyone, I record it as a Zoom call because they have all been so good. I published them as podcasts. And then I'm deciding on whether or not to do like future episodes. And I wish I would have done that for our conversation, but I'm sure today is going to be just as amazing, if not even more so. So I'm uh, really excited. Well, we have yes. Cindy. We have Cindy with us today. So we'll be so <laughs> It's now going to be like even more exciting. And I love having interviews where um, it's more than two of us. I mean, obviously two of us is sufficient, but it's really fun to have lots of uh, different thinking um, at the table. So what I thought we could first do is start with introductions. And so Pamela, why don't you go ahead and go first and tell us about yourself? Okay, so I am Pam Miles, and I am the founder and CEO of a company called Apothecare. And we are doing uh, research on human microbiomes and how products affect human microbiomes. Thank you. And then Cindy? Hi, Cindy Orser. Um, I'm a... 25-year practicing scientist. I've worked across many different industries, uh, mainly in diagnostics, but uh, different fields uh, from mad cow disease to uh, dehalogenation reactions. And the last eight years, I've been in the cannabis space. I've built out two cannabis testing facilities, one in Las Vegas, one in San Diego, And it's through my cannabis work that I got connected with Pam uh, because she was looking for somebody who was interested, uh, had the capabilities and access to develop these assays so that we could start screening uh, their impact on the sentinel species uh, in the reproductive tract. 
Awesome. Well, that's a really great segue because, you know, so many of us generally understand that the microbiome, it needs to be balanced. We know there's a ton of research happening in this space. We know there's a lot that still needs to be understood. I think one of the cool ones is um, I spoke with a, a gut health expert who specializes in IBS and he said, and he's older, he said, you know, not in my lifetime, but right now we're doing all this testing where you could get a sample of your stool, get it tested and see what's out of balance. But what we don't know yet is what to then do necessarily. And soon you will be able to get a custom prescription of different things, obviously in addition to stop eating McDonald's every day. Um, where we'd be able to have more of a balanced gut. Um, so we know all of those things, right? But there are all these nuances, which is why I wanted to connect with you because you're talking about the reproductive space. But talk to us about why specifically we need to really further investigate this reproductive health and the microbiome. Cindy, I'm going to let you take that because you know, you, you've got the science, the history and the science down. But what, what I can just beginning to say is that when I started looking at this research, you know, some of this goes back to 1999 and how we know that disturbances in the vaginal microbiome can affect susceptibility to HIV. So that's 1998. And we still have these products on the market that can affect our vaginal microbiome. But I'm going to let Cindy talk a little bit more about where the science has led us and what we're looking at. Yeah, it's really startling. It was actually in 1983, the first publication that showed a connection between disturbance of a normal, healthy microflora in the vagina and occurrence of uh, disease states, whether it was um, just bacterial vaginosis um, yeast infections, pelvic inflammation. Uh, now we know that that inflammation leads to an influx of inf inflammatory CD4 cells, which have the site for attachment of the HIV virus for infection. So um, if you have this uh, uh, disturbance in your vaginal microflora, you're at a higher risk for infection of HIV. And, you know, it could even go to the extreme that it impacts women's fertility, it leads to endometriosis, and we yet don't know the connection with precancerous cells. But the, you know, I think the point is that even though we've known this, and like Pam always says, everything stays in the lab, very little gets out in front of the public. And so we're taking what is way established observations. And now we've developed a very simple diagnostic. We're developing a second generation, more sophisticated molecular diagnostic where we can just simply look at a lot of these products that women have been told that they should use and look at what is the impact of these products. And eventually we'll be looking at ingredients in, this, in the disruption of this normal homeostasis. And we're talking about lactobacilli species, which make uh, lactic acid, and hydrogen peroxide, both of which are antimicrobial to a lot of these 
uh, invading uh, microorganisms like Staph aureus, uh, Strep B, HIV, HPV. So we're just really at the tip of the iceberg. We kind of started out as this is a, a, a work of advocacy for public health, for women's health. And as you know, uh, being uh, you know in the field you are, that women's health has been largely ignored and the focus has been uh, always on the male side. And now it's come full, full circle. There's a lot of attention. People are very interested now because, I mean, the bottom line is whatever is affecting the female reproductive tract impacts the, the male. And, you know, there's more and more reports coming out that in, in, in general, uh, fertility rates are dropping uh, across the world and, and probably at the highest rate among Caucasian populations. And uh, so, you know, we're just starting down this track, but we believe that we're going to find some very interesting associations. So we're very motivated, very excited to uh, bring some enlightenment on this, you know, fundamental area. Wow. So real quick with the fertility, because I just want to address this, and I don't want this to be a, a fertility conversation, because um, we have so many um, other things to talk about as well. But just uh, some might say, well, everyone's having kids older, of course, rates are dropping. So what would be your your quick uh, reaction to that? Definitely, if you postpone pregnancies, your fertility is, is going to be lower. Um, and, you know, I'm the first to point out, you know, I'm not a gynecologist, uh, I'm a scientist, but, uh, you know, a, a woman is born with all their eggs, eggs uh, are aging, accumulating mutations. Um, but, you know, what we're really addressing is how that microenvironment on the, uh, in, in the vagina, in the uterus, how that changes and affects the implantation of uh, the, the fertilized embryo. And, you know, we don't know, but I suspect that uh, disruption of the reproductive tract microflora definitely um, impacks fertility. And then, and then, you know, I think there's other research that's, that's being done. And we talked to another company yesterday that, that's looking at uh, some of the environmental factors that are, that are endocrine disruptors. And certainly that's part of phase two of what we will be doing or phase three with, with our work, but I think we just don't know. And then the longer you are on this earth, the more you are exposed to new environmental factors. So I think there's implications. Um, and like Cindy said, you know, we're not gynecologists or reproductive specialists, but we read a lot of the literature that's out there and talk to a lot of people. And I think that there are environmental factors that have also been implicated as well as, you know, the, the age of, of, of the couples that are reproducing. Why don't we talk a bit more about these case studies, just so we can bring to life common products that we women use that you've tested that we already know impact. And I'm not sure if you guys want to mention brand names. You can or can't. I'm going to leave, leave that up to you. Um, but I'd love to hear some case studies. We started this, and we should also mention that we um, have worked along with Women's Voices for the Earth, who is has been doing this kind of advocacy work for over 20 years. Um, so we started looking at cannabis products because, as Cindy said, I 
live in the state of Massachusetts and cannabis is legal in Massachusetts uh, for adult use. So I had read a lot of information about how cannabis used internally, vaginally, could be a pain mitigator for such things as like period cramps um, or vaginal dryness or pain with postmenopausal intercourse. And I started making these suppositories based on the recipes that you find on the internet in my kitchen. And I started to give them to my friends and my family members. You know, my daughters are in reproductive ages and their friends are. And all of a sudden I thought I'm, I'm kind of a researcher by nature. Well, what is the impact of this on their reproductive health? Because we've heard all about all this fertility stuff, right? And there really isn't any research on how cannabis applied vaginally can affect the reproductive health of people. So we started to do our own research. And the phase one was to look at how it, it, it affects the microbiota. And so we started just, as I said, Cindy was in a cannabis lab, which was allowed to do R&D. So we worked with Cindy to take a look at some cannabis isolates and then some full spectrum, broad spectrum cannabis products that are on the market. And that's what we tested first. And our first testing showed that the isolates, which I don't know, Cindy, if you want to explain what an isolate is versus a distillate, but basically it's a purified form. It's a molecular version of, it's not like what you're going to get from your garden. It's purified. So we know that the molecules itself, like the THC and the CBD, were not contributing to dysbiosis or, or killing the lactobacillus. They weren't cytotoxic. And some of the products that we tested were fine. So we went ahead and started to talk about how are we going to disseminate this research. But what we also learned is that none of these products are tested this way. So products that have been on the market forever, and, and I will mention maybe one because it's cited in the literature often, is, is Vagisil. So it's a wash, right? And it's designed to be externally applied. But yet, as we know from some of the research that we've done, people use this product internally and it can destroy your vaginal microbiota, opening you up to all kinds of different infections possibly. So that's how we started to start to test at, we called it like birth. And I think you and I have spoken about this, that we talked like birth to old age. We started to test some suppositories that were used for fertility or all over the counter things that you could buy online, in your local Walgreens, CVS, Target, um, washes, wipes, deodorants. And we found that some of them are inhibitory. And then some of them on our first test seem to be okay. Now we've refined our testing method, as Cindy has said. Um, it's much more rigorous. And we've gone back and tested some things. And we found that some of the cannabis products that we had previously tested or the forms of cannabis we've tested can be inhibitory, we think, depending on what they are composed of. We found that you really shouldn't be using a wash internally. We know that, right, Cindy? Right. It's not. I mean, I think that I think most of the gynecologists out there and the obstetricians would tell you that they've known that forever. But there are still people in different worlds and populations and, you know, neighborhoods and your grandmother might have told you, you should use this Vagisil or this wash and you should use it internally and you shouldn't. So, and we've shown that that, that was the most cytotoxic of all the things that we tested. Would you say that was true, Cindy? Yes. Wow. 
we're not the first to do that. I mean, we there was a study in 2013 that showed that as well. So we've just replicated in some ways what others have done. And as Cindy has said before, well, why don't people know this? And why is this product still on the shelf? I think we should also mention, um, you know, that there is no requirement for safety testing for these products. So you can just get them on the shelf, um, which is pretty astonishing uh, in this day and age. So that's clearly one thing we hope to change is to get the FDA's attention that these products should undergo some safety testing now that we know that they impact a woman's health and chronic health and also uh, potentially infertility. So it's a, it's a very important topic. Now, one of the things that I was made aware of in our first conversation, Pam, is that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because I might have misunderstood the nuance, is that even if there are potentially FDA-approved drugs, the drugs aren't necessarily tested for how do they impact the vaginal microbiome. So it's it's not it's more of a you know, things are looked at in a certain way, but because we're only just now starting to look at a balanced microbiome, you know, are we going to go back now and test out all of these products that could potentially impact it? So where are we with that? So I think it, I would say that it's not drugs. I mean, I think drugs are different category in and of themselves. They have to go through a much more rigorous testing product procedure, but uh, products that are considered to be um, lubricants or um, tampons have to go through what's called a 510K process with the FDA. So they have to be tested, but there's no standard procedures for the microbiology that they use in that testing process. Um, and many products, so for instance, if you classify your product as a serum, so it's an intimate care serum, it's not designed to ameliorate any disease state, then it doesn't have to go through that process. So manufacturers are savvy and they know that. So especially with these new products that are coming on the market in the cannabis world that contain things like CBD and in in some states, THC, they don't have to be tested. In fact, because there's no federal legislation at all or federal requirements for, because cannabis is not legal federally, these products are not tested. So so that's where we're saying is that, okay, well, if, if we can do this and, you know, we are, we're a small operation that these big companies certainly can be testing their products for the impact that they have on the vaginal microbiota. You know, if this first, like, do no harm. Okay, so it doesn't, it's not cytotoxic to the, the four sentinel bacteria of the vaginal microbiome. Is that product safe to use for or whatever. Well, we can't tell you that, but we can say like hard stop. If it kills lactobacillus, don't use it. There are products out there that are safer. So go to those. I love that you're taking your advocacy and passion to like build a company around this that also raises awareness because it's so needed. I think the other thing that we can talk about is, I mean, there are a lot of things we can say, yes, I, I hear what you're saying about how we, we need to start selling science. You know, we market lots of products, but we don't sell science. And I think that we are being, uh, that's what we, the science should precede the product, right? And especially in this case, this is a, 
this is not a benign product. This is, we're talking about healthcare yep. and reproduction. We're talking about billions of dollars in healthcare spend that can be basically, we believe, prevented if people are a little bit more in tune with the products that they're using. You know, uh, I'm not going to name a company, but there is a company out there that is very, very successful in selling products that people put into their vagina that is not science-based. In fact, it, it, they, there is a lot of uh, rancor on the internet about how this company promotes product without science. And a lot of the OBGYNs, like I know Dr. Jen Guntner is one that people always go to, to kind of, she's the myth buster, yes. I think, for some of these products. So, but on the other hand, Georgie, I will tell you that I like to have faith in people and that they're good natured. But Cindy and I have spoken to some of these companies after we've tested their products and said, hey, you might want to look into this because we don't think that um, based on our work that this is a great product to have out there. There could be some tweaks. We can help you to figure out maybe what's the, what's the ingredient in your product that's causing the problem. And we've had some really interesting conversations, right, Cindy? Oh, yeah, we had one person say, well, we're respond we don't have that kind of money. And our testing right now is very, very inexpensive because we're still kind of in the beta phase. Yeah, I think Georgie brought up a good point, which is that, uh, you know, companies currently are playing by the rules, right? They don't have to do safety testing, so they're not going to do safety testing. Right. Um, and that's what we really need to try and change. It's really hard to innovate. So you're kind of stuck with this long delayed process and an old way of thinking that is going to require massive transformation. And I think this kind of stuff, I think, honestly, these women's health startups that are transforming the way we do care, I think what happened with COVID, it is forcing people to change because people aren't tolerating it anymore. But it's unfortunately still going to take time, especially if it's a biopharma company, because I'm working with them. And wow. Well, I, you know, I, I think nothing will wake the industry up more than if there's a class action lawsuit, if if it's shown that use of these products, in fact, is tied to infertility. Yeah, no, absolutely. So tell me more about some of the research that you all have uncovered that would be so insightful for the listeners to hear and just, again, bringing it more to life. Well, you know, we started out really simply just um, exposing these four sentinel lactobacilli species, and it's Gentii, Inners, Crispatus, and Gasserii, um, to these various products, as well as, as Pam said, you know, we started out, we were curious about cannabinoids, so we were also looking at uh, individual cannabinoids, and we're going to continue that work. Uh, because, you know, we're, we think we're kind of onto something with a lesser cannabinoid. And there are publications out there saying that uh, CBD is antimicrobial. Um, so, so besides looking at the sentinel bacteria associated with a healthy reproductive tract, we're also looking at those invasive species. And we've started out looking at Candida albicans, which is the most common yeast infection that women will get. And, you know, we're also talking about the urogenital tract. 
So, so that's going to be a new turn for us is actually, instead of looking at the impact on the healthy, it's like, how do these products influence the ability of these potentially invasive species to get a foothold? Um, the other thing we have planned through our collaborator at Baylor Medical School is looking at the different community type microbiomes. So not all women have the exact same makeup of lactobacilli. There'll be different species that are more dominant than other ones. I mean, that's been established in the literature that uh, black women, Hispanic women have a slightly different ratio of the lactobacilli species than Caucasian women. And uh, shockingly, uh, the composition that uh, black and Hispanic women have make them more susceptible to HIV uh, particularly if there's disruption. Uh, so we want to get more sophisticated by having community types that are associated with different demographics and different uh, ethnic groups. And we're also going to adapt a more sophisticated exposure. Uh, we have developed a molecular assay that is qPCR, but we're going to um, start using a mini bioreactor that's going to more simulate the conditions in the vagina rather than a very rich environment through just culturing the bacteria. This is all something we hope to start on as soon as we can get some traction in the funding space. And we should also say we're, we're really excited because we were accepted into a European femtech uh, lab accelerator awesome. so so yep so and and as i said to cindy you know every single person that we talk to and we talk about the work that we're doing raises the awareness exponentially um of you know just hey be be cognizant of the kind of products that you're using but you know i think that like i said we are inundated with marketing and i and if you just follow social media at all and you look at even menopausal i mean how many companies in the last three years have come out with a platform of selling products i mean honestly i would say in the past 12 months it's been crazy and lubricants i mean that is a huge that's a big market and and it's a big size it's a necessary thing but it's one of those things where we really need to be careful about what we're mm. using and we need to make sure that the companies that we're buying product from are thinking about testing and are testing their products. And that's where, our, that's really what our goal is too, is to make people aware. So, you know, if, if we can bring more people to have an awareness and we think that we can, we can affect change in terms of regulation, making companies test. Are we looking at women's health wrong? Like, I feel like we're approaching it from a women are sick and I'm wondering if mm. like there's this perpetual, because we deuced, we have imbalance. So therefore we're going to get a yeast infection. So therefore we're going to do this. And then we do this and it, like it keeps cycling because we don't have the education to just have the balance. And, you know, there, I, I could go on with other examples. I just didn't um, think of it. This was just the first one that came to my mind. But um, it's something that I've always wondered is if I were to advise a company on what products are missing in women's health, I'm like, what might those actually be? Well, I think there's, I'm going to say, I can say one thing that I think is heavily needed. And, you know, I am a consumer of information. Right. But, so I can tell you that I read a lot of women's stories on the internet 
about pain, pelvic pain. And that's where I started within my kitchen. There is a need for new products for pelvic pain. Um, you know, all these women that are talking about having IUDs inserted and IUDs removed, and they have excruciating pain. I mean, personally, I had lot, I've had a lot of procedures and I've had pain with every single one. I probably have more pain than maybe other people experience, but there was, there was nothing that I was given other than, and, and I, I am old, so I have been there before Advil existed. You know, it was Tylenol, it was Bayer aspirin that you took, you know, when I first had my period and I had really bad cramps and I had to go home from school in middle school because I couldn't function. You could take aspirin. Then we came out with Tylenol and I probably have had close to liver toxicity with the amount of Tylenol that I consumed to take care of my period cramps. You know, then we had naproxen sodiums that came out. You know, there's always been a new thing that you could do, but nothing really seemed to cut the pain for me. And then I had my, my daughters also suffered from really debilitating um, cramps and they were prescribed hormones when they were in. That was, you know, some of the doctors said we could try evening primrose, but we really don't have anything else. So you can do hormones. So I come from a family with a large history of breast cancer. My uncle had breast cancer. That's pretty rare, right? So as mom, I'm like, mm, do I really want my daughters to start? And I know the, the OBGYNs that are listening to this, if they come out, they're going to be like, hormones are safe, hormones are safe, hormones are safe. And that may be true, but it's still, you still question, you know, is that the right thing? Isn't there something that we could just use like, you know, three days a month instead of having something that we use all the time? Um, I think there are very limited options. You know, women talk about how the OBGYNs will say, I think there's 17% of women that suffer from really horrific pain when they have mm -hmm. IUD insertion or removal. But 17% of a large population of people, that's a pretty big portion that could use some yep. pain relief. So I think that's, honestly, I think that's a big place to start is that we need better Really, women's pain, people with vaginas and uteruses uh, and reproductive organs that can can house babies in them have a lot yeah. of pain. And I think we've been dismissed because for a very long time, the uh, providers of care did not have those organs. And so they didn't understand, right? You can only walk in the shoes you have, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, this is a big topic and, you know, cannabinoids probably have a lot to offer here, but there's so much we don't know about how the cannabinoids um, impact the overall physiology in the body be because of the fact that there's been no federal grant funding, so we don't have the basic re research. And some of that is, is just coming to light now. Um, for example, that CBD disrupts cholesterol homeostasis. And that's a really big one because all the sex hormones are made from cholesterol, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, as well as the bile acids that uh, help with digestion and the uptake of fatty acids. So um, you know, it's just not a complete panacea like most <laughs> pain relief. 
uh, there are side effects. So, uh, I, you know, we're going hand in hand uh, down that road. And, you know, we think that we can bring some additional insight. Uh, but for myself as a scientist, you know, I see uh, this urogenital uh, reproductive tract microbiome um, uh, work as just the first step, because as you are aware, there's uh, distinct microbiomes in other parts of the body. The one that's probably the most talked about is the gut, because now we know that disturbances in the gut microbiome actually lead to mental mm -hmm. health issues. And it's probably uh, largely connected to the high sugar diets that a lot of people uh, have these days. And that is equally, if not more serious for investigation. So I hope that uh, Apothecare can gain the attention and the funding that will allow us to start looking at other microbiomes and the impact of, of what we expose them to in our bodies. Yeah, and I guess that's what I was kind of getting at with this whole, are we perpetuating sickness? And I love the research that you're doing because you're kind of looking at the impact because like, for example, Pam, when you were talking about the IUD, I was interviewing someone who I actually uh, want to see where she's at with her product, um, but she's a founder of a company out in Israel. And she was showing me pictures of IUDs and different shapes and sizes of uterus, uteruses, uteri. And she um, showed why so many women get pelvic pain with it. And she's created a, pro her company, I should say, has created a product where like gets inserted like this round device and then it unfolds to the shape and size of your uterus. So I guess that's what I'm getting at is like, we have these things and they cause these issues, but we're, we're not looking right. at the why. So it's like, okay, it's not, yay, IUD causes pain. It's why does it cause pain? Okay, well, because it's not customized to the size of the woman. And so like, you see, there's like this whole... Yeah, chicken in the egg, right? And I think that's what Cindy and I are trying to get out with some of the work that we're doing in the lab in terms of preventative medicine. Like, you know, there's a lot of companies now, and you've talked to a lot of them that are doing these diagnostics or these uh, remediations, yep. right? But that's why I said, like, if, they, this, if a product you're using is toxic to lactobacillus, then just hard exactly. stop, don't use it. And we're yep. right, right. So the, you're right. We're not, we're not in a constant disease state. Like we don't need that stuff. I mean, and there's also a lot of misogyny um, that would say that, you know, women or people with vaginas and uteruses uh, need to be prepped for encounters. And that those, that means that you need to you know, be a certain scent. Um, and, and, and I think we need to get rid of all of that too. Right. You know, that's, that's not helping us to be healthy in many ways, in our brain and in our body. And, you know, insurance, health insurance companies should be interested in preventative care. Yeah, we're starting to get there, starting to get there. Europe was way ahead. I mean, I remember when I started in the industry, I was a few years in and you could already see the restrictions in Europe and how they were mandating which drugs would be on formulary and things like that based on evidence. And, you know, we're slowly getting there in the U.S. So, like, where would someone stand right now on CBD? 
what would be the takeaway today? Is it be careful, monitor what happens to your body when you take it? Like what, sh- what would you guys say as a, in the meantime, while you're doing the research thing with CBD? Well, they're, they're probably uh, better than a lot of the, these 20, 30 year old products that are on the shelf if you want to use something. And I would say that you um, really have to look at the, you know, the products that are on the market, you have to look at where they're made um, and how you're using it. I mean, we're talking about intimate care products, right? We're not talking about product CBD that you're going to ingest right now. We're not, we haven't tested that. We're looking at things that people are making. Primarily, we've looked at a lot of products that are in California, either uh, suppositories for pain relief, sexual lubricants, sexual aids. I, I think you have to be careful because we have tested some products and some of them were just, we're, we're not comfortable yet going out and naming the products that have a problem. I think we're more, we're happier to name the products that don't have a problem um, because, and, and we still can't say for sure a hundred percent that these products aren't going to cause another downstream effect. We can just say that they're not cytotoxic in the lab to lactobacillus. That's all we can say, but we feel like that's a little bit more than some other people are saying. Um, So I think we also have done some new, as Cindy said, some newer research that's showing that some of these broad spectrum products, even though they only contain um, CBD because they might have other cannabinoids in them or terpenes, may also be detrimental to the lactobacilli. So I think you have to be really, you just have to be consumer aware until we have more science and more testing. So what I would advocate for is that everybody advocates for testing, you know, like the consumers, the consumers in, in large groups can impact what companies do. And, you know, we can help them to, we can help companies to test their product. We'd love to do that. Um, You know, that's why we're here. We're here because we want to raise awareness. We want the world to be safe and healthy and yes, pain-free. And pain-free, that's, that's 100%. 100%. So have you guys tested tampons? Are there things around tampons that we need to be aware of? Because I know right now it's 100% organic. Like that's, it's kind of like they exist and then there's organic, use organic. Like that's kind of as simply as at least I'm aware of it. Anything we should know there? You're both smiling, so you must know something. <laughs> or what does the research say if you haven't tested it? Well, I would point to Women's Voices for the okay. for the Earth. I mean, uh, Alex Grant and Gorman has done 20 years of research on this, and they were the lead in getting the Tampon Labeling Act passed in the state of New York. And that influenced tampon labeling for materials that are contained within tampons for all the U.S. And even I've looked at some international products that now have materials labeling. So, and Alex will tell you that she's just at the beginning of her research on what are the impacts of some of the things that are contained within tampons? Because for a long time, we didn't even know. Companies, again, there was no regulation and you didn't have to say what was in them. I think you probably are aware of some of the recent um, internet scuttlebutt about um, titanium dioxide. And Cindy and I have been in contact with some people about this titanium dioxide is a, Cindy, am I saying this right? Is it a chemical? Would you say it's a chemical or a compound? And and it's used as a whitening product. It's also used, you know, in, um, in a lot of sunscreens 
So, and it's in, used in a lot of, uh, actually, it was, what was it, Skittles and... Um, oh, right. Starburst, right? Yeah, it was just, on the EU, I think they just took it off a list of um, approved chemicals that you can put in foods. So all of a sudden, people started looking at the tampon boxes and they say titanium dioxide. So they're wondering, what does that do? And we don't know. You know, and that's what's okay. So Dr. Guntner on her um, social media posted that Health Canada has studied titanium dioxide and she doesn't think that it's problematic. Other people are saying that it needs to have more research. So we we are actually looking at testing um, titanium dioxide in isolation in the lab just to see what that product would do to the lactobacillus. We're moving towards doing some of that testing. Um, but there is a large body of, of research about tampons. And like you said, people are looking at organic. I've seen new products that have, um, that are from the EU that have seaweed. They're seaweed based tampons. We've, we have been in contact with a company that makes hemp based tampons. Uh, so there's lots of stuff that's out there and a lot of it still has to be examined and tested even organic tampon companies, you know, now they have to list their ingredients. I mean, I would, again, direct people towards Women's Voices for the Earth. They have a large body of information on um, intimate care products like tampons and pads. And and uh, a few years ago, there was a recall of a lot of products in Korea because they were causing um, pads that were causing burns. Ouch. So you do have to be careful. Okay. Cindy, your thoughts? Well, I mean, we would like to test them. Uh, we actually talked to a company yesterday called Next Gen Jane, and they're using tampons as a way to collect samples to look at RNA expression levels in women and then correlate those expression profiles to disease states. Wow. Really cool. Stuff. I mean, we are like uh, when you said that you spoke to the, an older gentleman who's been looking at the gut microbiome. I mean, I'm I'm not young, but I would like to see. I would think that some of these changes are going to be made in the next ten years. I think that collectively, there's a new focus on uh, doing things for people that have reproductive organs that are going to make. Two, two or three years ago, nobody was really talking about menopause. Now it is like, it is, and, and the microbiome, you go into a little bit slower here, I think, in introducing like skin microbiome um, products. But if you go into a cosmetic store in London, you'll see that half the products there now talk about your skin microbiome. So I think we're becoming a lot more knowledgeable about these microorganisms that exist to make us have a homeostatic state and how we really don't want to kill any of the good ones. No, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it is really cool to, to, to hear all of this research and the way that you guys are looking at it. And it's funny, as I was listening to you, I know that marketing is the front of the box, the facts are the back of the box. And I will tell you, even someone who has been, you know, researching in this space for over a decade now, I, I, I actually laugh. I remember one time I bought a product and I think after I ingested it, I looked at the back and I was like, good job marketers. You did such a good job marketing that I, who read labels, bought the product and then looked at the back and I'm like, that's why I don't feel good. 
Yes. <laughs> I wish, you know, it would be so cool as if everything was reversed or the, the label was the front or like the warning is the front yeah. and then the pretty packages um, are on the back. Right. Well, that, you know, and that's what they're finally requiring cigarette makers to do is the warning has to be on the front. It has to be a third of the box. You know, Georgie, the, one of the things that I think that gets me a little annoyed is that companies spend so much money on branding and marketing, right? And that they spend so little on the composition of their product and the science behind it. They go, they market first, like I said before, and science second. And if you could just, I, as Cindy said, well, wait till you get a class action suit. I mean, look what happened with the tobacco industry. It, it's not that hard to do the science. I, again, I am not a scientist and, and we did the science. Well, of course I have Cindy that does the science, but the point is it, it wasn't that hard to figure this out. Well, but again, structure and incentives drive behavior. You're a startup. They're not. I mean, this is, this is why we need the startups because it's going to force and why we need advocacy um, because that's really where the change happens. Again, I don't think people... Yeah, I don't think people wake up trying to, I mean, Grin, I know you followed up with folks, but I would bet just given some conversations that I've had with with friends, um, I think a lot of it is people are just used to operating in a certain way. And when something different is thrown at a human, they're like, I don't know what to do with this information. And so, I I mean, I love this conversation because I feel like we're exposing the holes in the system and different ways people need to think. And, and you know, I, I share a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. So hopefully this episode will help create awareness with uh, some of uh, the corporations out there as well. And even investors yeah. and women who need to advocate for themselves. So if I were to go on your website today and I'm a consumer and I want to get the scoop on these products, you've given us general themes what, what would someone find today and what are you guys planning for in the future? Because I want to just set expectations just in case people go to your website and are like, I want to know every single product and where the status is. So, so tell, us, tell us what we can expect. Well, I would say that you can't expect that much. <laughs> I'm going to be very honest with that <laughs> because, you know, we want to make sure as, as, um, as, I, when I, as I talk to Cindy that science is rigorous and we want to make sure that our testing is rigorous. Right. So, so we started with, with talking about naming some products that we really felt were kind of deleterious. Um, And we would, I would say that Vagisil and Summer's Eve, the two washes that we tested that are widely available on the market, you should not use them internally. And that's all I can say, right? They are, they flatline the lactobacillus. Now that again, manufacturers will say to you, these are designed to be external products. So the vagina is an internal organ. So how people are using it is off-label. And that's up to the consumer to read the label and make sure they're using it properly. But we would say, has anybody ever done a study that shows how much product gets into the internal organ if you're using it externally, especially with a lubricant? Okay, so we know that a lubricant is being used for some form of internal operation, whether it's with a partner or with yourself. So how much of that lubricant is internal? People will say, well, that's not. It's a serum. It's outside. That's designed 
I had a company tell me that their product was designed to be taken off orally. So it would never get into the internal reproductive organs, you know, but we don't even know when we talk about urogenital too, we don't know how much of this is getting into the urethra, how much is causing uh, urinary tract infections. You know, we know that, that from, from ages like bath bombs and uh, washes have been implicated with urinary tract infections as well. So what we would say is be very careful. I think all the OBGYNs out there would say you don't need to use a lot of products that, um, are designed for scent or designed to wash. That they, there are, you can use very benign things for that. So we, like I said, we, you know, we are we are perfecting our science. So we want to make sure that we are that we're not naming companies without the without speaking to them and making sure that they are doing their own internal vetting. Okay. Um, you know, we, I can tell you that we've tested, um, you know, you can, you can see some of the products that we tested in the cannabis space. Um, we tested some products in California. We brought them ourselves and some of the products that tested in our one time, three time testing in the lab that were safe were uh, hello again is a product that's a vaginal suppository for the relief of different symptoms, or I shouldn't say symptoms, but for Daytime and nighttime application. Um, and then there was another product that we tested called Quim. And those seem to be fine in the lab. Again, in the lab. Now, the other thing that I can tell you about the cannabis industry is that it all depends on the supply that you're getting at the time. Right, Cindy? I mean, Cindy started as a cannabis testing lab. She knows that there's variability from batch to batch even, right? We're saying, hey, this is the beginning. We don't know all the information yet but we want to raise the awareness so that we can keep moving forward. Yeah. I, I think we feel more comfortable focusing on the ingredients rather than calling products out. That makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else like a summary or takeaway that you wanted to share before we close out? Well, I would just echo what Cindy just said. We are really trying to isolate what ingredients are problematic so that we can inform manufacturers and we, you know, we want good products to exist. So the more that people, the more funding we can get, the more interest we can, we can um, have, the more we will be able to do that. So that would be my takeaway is there's a lot more work that has to be done and we'd love to do it and we'd love to test the product. And we'd also like to get regulation in place. If we can do this, we know companies can do it and there should be regulation. Yes, and, and we're, we're really just at the very beginning, but we, we know we're on to something. We don't believe any other company is taking this approach. Um, and the fact that we have a vision to look at other microbiomes and not look at just the beneficial microbes, but also the invasive microbes, uh, including viruses. It's so interesting because sometimes I have such different companies that I interview and I'm starting to get really into the research stuff because I think, like you said, that's where it hits. Because I, I talk to folks and they take it, said it takes like five to 10 years before something becomes medical practice and uh, or standard of care. And so it's like, well, why not just go straight to the researchers and start creating awareness? So, um, so here we go. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, and, 
if you talk to people in the intimate care space, send them our way. Okay. We will. Te- we want to test their products. Sure. No, absolutely. That's another app. Yeah. I mean, the more companies that test their product, the better off we all will yeah, be. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, thank you for your dedication. Thank you for making time. And thanks for reaching out to my friend, Karen, who um, introduced us. This was a, a really great discussion. And uh, thank you so much.